Two Geeks on a Marketing Podcast, episode 95, the one about the Dasani marketing disaster, the art of opening scenes, visual stories in the film Waterworld. Let's get on with the show. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, we're here to keep you up to date with the latest news, tech, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. And joining me, as always, all the way from France, is a man who's on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. Oh, well, thank you very much. Always a highlight to spend some time with the man who's also on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the Marketing Fans Podcast and the author of Cats Master Marketing Plans, I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Well, Pascal, here we are with episode 95. And as always, towards the end of the show, we have the film marketing section. And this mm. week you've chosen a pretty long film, if I remember rightly. The film Waterworld clocks in at about three hours, doesn't it? That's if you have are lucky enough to see the uh, uncut director's version, but yeah. people went to the cinema to see a 2 and 15 um, version. The reason we chose this movie, not only was it published in 1995, so that's an, the link with today's episode, but for some reason, this movie has inherited such a bad reputation, and it's completely unfounded, and we're going to explore why. <laughs> I have to say, Pascal, I've been tainted with that <laughs> reputation because I don't think... Uh, that we've actually seen Waterworld since the original theatrical release, which means that we have seen that truncated two-hour yes, version right. that you were talking mm. about. So really looking forward to talking about that. But as always, we've got a packed show, lots to get through in the news, etc. content spotlight. So I think we better start at the very beginning and dive straight into the news. And we begin with Boots, who's launched its biggest ever healthcare campaign. Our health is as individual as we are in support of women of all ages. The campaign combines TV, digital display advertising, print, social, in-store and online. Morrison's is executing another round of price cuts in response to the cost of living crisis as the price war continues amongst UK supermarkets. Price reductions of almost a fifth on average will take place across a further 64 products, representing an additional investment of 25 million. Costa Coffee has hired former marketer Philip Scaly as its new CEO, who will start in April and succeed Jill McDonald, who left the business last summer to return to fast food chain McDonald's. Yeah, Jill McDonald leaves to go back to McDonald's. There's something <laughs> incestuous about that, isn't there? Amazon has decided it wants staff to work from the office the majority of the time, informing employees they are to do so at least three days a week from May the 1st. Why to reduce avoidable food waste to co-op has removed best before dates from over 150 fresh fruits and vegetables products this week. The decision follows a trial on 20 products last year. According to Impressions survey of 1,000 UK-based senior marketers, over two-thirds, 68%, of SMEs plan to increase their overall marketing budget in 2023, with more than half planning to invest more of that budget into brand awareness activity. My data for media agency Spark Foundry suggests that 56% of consumers reported using social media to make a purchase in the three months to the end of December, up from 48%. And finally, in the last year, interest in environmental issues has dropped by almost a fifth 
well, 19% actually, amongst UK's Gen Z, which has 16 to 25-year-olds, as the near-constant cycle of negative news causes crisis fatigue. So, Pascal, let's stick with that last piece mm. of news there, this whole issue of crisis fatigue. Do you think, do you feel crisis fatigue? I think I do. Every time you look at the news, whether it's online newspapers, print newspapers, whether you're on a TV news program, it's all negative, isn't it? We've got the obviously the, the horrifying war in Ukraine, but it's all one crisis after another. In fact, we use the word crisis so much more now that everything seems like a crisis. I mean, at the moment in the UK, we have got a tomato and pepper crisis because apparently there are no tomatoes and peppers left. That could be down to Brexit or apparently it could be down to some storms at the, in southern um, Spain, which have destroyed tomato and pepper uh, crops this year. Do you feel crisis fatigue's real? Yeah, and, and I think it's to do with the complete imbalance with regard to, to the media, uh, whether it's online, whether it's in print and so on. And that's something that you and I can observe because we, we have the luxury of uh, history. We can look back at 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and 30 years ago, and the way in which the news so desperate, and I mean news, I use the term globally, Roger, I talk about anyone needs you know to gather someone's attention. They're so desperate for that attention. They are so ill-equipped actually to even understand what people want to hear about that they're going for shock they're going for headline grabbing they're going for clickbaiting they turn to chat gpt to do some you know 10 different versions of the same news article and little by little i talk to friends and family and every everybody's removing themselves from tv mm. from newspapers and from social media yeah, I think I think it's right, and 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 quite a lot of the time, it's actually the language that is used, isn't it? The word crisis is so overused now. I remember back to the beginnings of the pandemic when the word unprecedented, everything was unprecedented, wasn't it? And, <laughs> and crisis, and it just mm. it eventually these words worm their way into your head, and they it, it does create that that fatigue. And and I think you're right. Um, people are turning off. I mean, I've had that conversation with a number of people as well as one of the only ways to feel, you know, mentally secure at the moment is to just not watch the news because the mm. news is guaranteed to get you feeling really pretty down about everything. So we really need to start looking for positive things out there. Well, that's what we do on this show, yeah, Roger, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so Let's have a look at another um, item that we spoke about there. Again, it's slightly related. You know, we've, we've said to a certain extent some people are turning off social media, but according to this um, Spark Foundry, 56% of consumers are now using social media to guide purchases, um, which is up again from, from the previous year. Now, I remember years and years and years ago, and I'm going to get this wrong because I've only just thought of it and I haven't had a chance to look it up, but I remember Google coming up, out with something called, was it something like the zero moment of truth? That's when correct, some, yeah. When mm -hmm. somebody, oh, I want to buy a new car, I want to go on holiday, I want to buy a new washer, whatever it is, and you go to Google. And that's your zero moment of truth when you start the purchasing decision. You do the Google search for the item you want to purchase. But now it appears that the, the zero moment of truth has moved away from Google to a certain extent. And people are diving into TikTok, diving into um, um, Instagram stories or whatever it is and, and, and starting the purchasing journey on social media. 
Yeah, well, you know, I, th I think the data probably suggests that's where people spend most of their time, not discounting what we just mentioned about a desire to have access to positive news. I mean, when it comes to social media, people really, what they're saying is, I want to hear from my friends and family. I want to hear from my contacts. I want to smile. I want to be entertained. I want to kind of chuckle at someone's kind of, um, you know, post and, and that kind of things. And then, so if, you know, you're the if you could look at the your time budget is spent on social media, then of course advertisers and brands are going to be using that to their to their advantage. When the advert or the message is in tune with the um, the platform, with the context, so they're using wit, they're using uh, good timing, and so on, and they avoid you know that, that kind of crisis led uh, messaging. I suspect they're going to be uh, very very successful. I think what would be interesting is what happens next year. So looking at twenty twenty three data, um, but yeah, I think that makes complete sense to me. Moving back to one of the earlier items we discussed, Morrison's is. Mm introducing some more price cuts and we've seen price cuts across uk supermarkets and and there is indeed in the uk a price war in the supermarket space at the moment now it's it, it feels as if that's something that's passed me by because everything seems so expensive at the moment but one thing that i have noticed and i'd be interested to get the the france perspective on this from you, you pascal is that yes some prices are coming down but quite a lot of these manufacturers are playing this tricky game where they actually reduce the size of things as well so you might be pay, paying a smaller price but they've also shrunk the packaging so you're actually mm. getting less for your money. And sometimes, sometimes, and I've noticed this especially with things like Twixes or bags of um, crisps, is that the price stays the same, but the packaging actually gets smaller. And I've noticed particularly recently that some of the um, chocolate bars and some of the crisp packets that we used to have are now significantly smaller. I, I even joked with um, Trisha the other day that what eventually we'll be buying individually wrapped crisps from um, some of these manufacturers. Is this happening in, in, in France as well? Are you getting price reductions? Are there price wars in the equivalent supermarkets in France? And, and do they do this packaging reduction thing as well? So we don't have price reductions in France. Um, and what is interesting is, because I listen to both the French news and the, the UK news, is there is a strange thing happening right now in the media whereby supermarket chains are being accused of not paying a fair price for you know what they're purchasing from the farming and agriculture sector and, and the food producers. Uh, so, so I think for, for us in France, the price was already on the high side um, the, the one way we used to kind of satisfy ourselves with Denise, my wife, was that well, if you comp if you do the exchange rate uh, game in your head, that bag of crisps is not that expensive after all. But actually, it was more expensive than than in the UK. So, so we don't have the price reduction. We are not yet getting the issue of shortage, and I think it's because you know we are getting the supply from the rest of yeah. EU countries in in particular. And and more importantly, there's also a culture of buying at the market and buying from the local greengrocers 
as opposed to going to the supermarkets all of the time. So it's, it's fascinating to observe as someone that's com- going, coming back to the to, to France after 32 years in the UK. <laughs> yeah, I, d- I did read another article recently that did suggest that actually in the UK, we've had it so good when it comes to food prices for the last couple of decades that we've got used to really, really cheap food, whether that's mm. vegetables, whether it's meat, whatever it is, we've got used to really cheap food. And actually now as a combination of Brexit and different uh, different structures and, and obviously weather events we are now realizing that you know the time has come that food prices are going to increase so mm-hmm. you know may, maybe uh, you know there's a lot of spotlights on this is a big brexit event this is a big um, problem but maybe it is just an equalization of something i think that we so have taken i think granted. it's so multifaceted um and it's not much fun you know no, no matter whether you know you're in france and so on at this moment in time and and I think where the brands are going to win is actually when they present themselves in a way that feels very honest and ethical. And I'm in two minds by the news by the co-op, you know what, what they're doing, the best before dates and so on. So can you actually engage the audience in a way that is is honest, that is you know in, in tune with with, with the, the current period of time, and, and be part of um, you know the, the chosen network of of allies at this moment in time? Yeah. Some fascinating news items mm. there, Pascal. And you know, I'm tempted to talk about Amazon wanting everybody to stay in the office now rather than working from home. And I do wonder, well, there's so many people who work for Amazon working in factories packing things up, so there's no way they can work from home. But we'll not go into that because we need to move on because we've got some content spotlights to talk about. In the content spotlight section of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table a piece of content. It could be a video, it could be an article, it could be a podcast, and we go into it in quite a bit of detail. So, Pascal, what have you got in your spotlight this week? Oh, well, listen, I've got a video this week, and I'm very, very pleased because... I've been working very hard to make it relevant to our audience as well. I mean, we always do, don't get me wrong, but I've chosen a video entitled The Art of the Opening Scene, How to Start a Movie Six Different Ways. And this is by the team from Studio Binder. By the way, to all our content spotlights and content creators out there, when you have a team effort, Roger and I are very, very keen to give credits where credit's due. So please, please, can you make sure that in the closing credits or in the, in the descriptions, put your name, put you know, the name of the team members. But for now, I will have to thank you know the founders of Studio Binder, the, the kind of software solution to help you produce your movie. Um, we're talking about Robert Caraz and Simona Clapan, who um, basically have been the driving force behind Studio Binder. And this video talks and addressing the, the wants and needs of filmmakers and documentary makers. But I think there's definitely lessons in there, Roger, for anyone using video to market their business. So they're looking at six different ways in which a movie opens. And the, what they're suggesting is think about this as part of your visual storytelling. Think about this as part of um, how you're going to really bring an audience into your, your your world. And I think that the techniques are relevant if you're doing case studies, if you're doing product demonstration, if you're doing a, a podcast interview, anything where you want people to engage swiftly and understand what this is about. So let's move on through the six techniques. Technique number one, Enter the villain. This is used uh, a lot in movies whereby the only character that is introduced to begin with is essentially the villain. And they have the example here of the Dark Knight. 
reviewed, by the way, all of you on Two Geeks and Marketing podcast. And this is the introduction of the Joker and Heath Ledger when they are robbing the bank. And so if you take it into the world of business, this is you introducing the, the problem. This is you introducing the obstacle. This is you introducing essentially what is causing your clients to need you and to d- demonstrate and display essentially the, the impact of um, of that you know, challenge that you can be the problem of. So take number one, enter the villain. So of course, take number two is going to be enter the hero. And the example they're showing here is Skyfall, because we are not just introduced to James Bond, Skyfall reviewed on Two Geeks and Marketing Podcast as well, <laughs> they introduced James Bond, but we are treated to a 10-minute chase sequence across um, Istanbul. The other one that they actually mentioned is Vertigo. So same, we have our anti-hero um, chasing actually somebody across rooftops and nearly falling to um, his death. So I never realized there was a correlation between Skyfall and Vertigo until until today. So then what you can do is combine the two. Technique number three, establishing relationships. So can you maybe in a montage scenario create interaction between the villain and the hero swiftly so you can build the tension and then, of course, the story revealing how the hero can, of course, overcome the villain or, in your case, how you have helped your client overcome the the obstacle. So they're showing a couple of um, examples there, but the one that they mentioned was Mad Max Fury Road. So Mm -hmm. the opening scene is the character looking through the distance that suddenly jumps into his uh, incredible vehicle and kind of uh, racing across the desert only to be caught by, you know, the baddies. And the other one, which I thought was interesting in terms of showing the different characters um, uh, in a Monty situation, was Reservoir Dogs. If you recall, yeah. they're all in a cafe having a, this kind of exchange. So you could do the same thing here. And this could be actually a, a team video. So before you show the full story of the team, you could have a montage of snippets and, and vox pops of the different team members, and then you reveal more about it. Technique number four, what they call the plot catalyst. So this is all linked to the villain and, of course, the um, journey to overcome the villain. So why is this happening? What is maybe the event or the object or the crisis, to use that term again, that is creating the need for that story to be told? Two examples they mentioned, Lord of the Rings. So we open, if you recall, with the flashbacks, talking about the rings of power. So that's the catalyst. Mission Impossible 3, do you remember the rabbit foot? Yeah. This is how we we open. We watched it recently. And then one of my really, well, I love all movies, as people will know, <laughs> but Children of Man. Have you seen that one, Roger? Oh, not for a long time. Yeah. It opens with uh, our anti-hero stepping outside of a cafe yet again to be faced with an explosion and, and conflict and so on. And it becomes a catalyst. So where on one hand, you know, with tech number one, you you kind of show uh, the, the, the villain, if you like, you know, the obstacle call in technique number four you're really going to demonstrating you know the why it's happening and so on it's a lovely one to do technique five and six are interesting from the context of moving from filmmaking to video marketing so technique number five they call this follow the genre so what they're saying is begin your story begin your video begin your case study your promo reel with a style of music and title sequence that pay an homage to a genre it could be Western, it could be sci-fi, it could be um, comedy, whatever. And then you bring people into that one. And you can continue to make a nod to that style you've chosen as part of the execution and almost the tone of voice of the video. So, yeah, why not? You know, you could begin a product tour as almost um, 
a Western style with a standoff between you know, you, uh, maybe your staff and the, the item or the software, or whatever, and then it can go into that. And then finally, number six is what they call flip the genre. So start with a well-established genre and then flip it to surprise the audience. So the example I can think of, we've seen in movies before, somebody goes home late at night, you've got the music, you've got the, the darkness of the night, you've got light and so on. And it feels as though this character's in danger. They open the front door, they step inside, surprise, and there's a birthday party you know, for them. So you flip the genre, and then you carry on the story being told about that. And one example that was mentioned about keeping you on your toes all of the time is the horror comedy Get Out. Oh, uh, yeah. So there you have it. This this is the art of the opening scene, how to start a movie or a visual story in six different ways, thanks to the team at Studio Binder. Wow, it's so good. I mean, I, I, when you were explaining those six things, of course, my brain was trying to immediately <laughs> go to... Uh, I'm glad you gave me examples because I was probably um, sitting there thinking, oh, what what film would fit that? But fortunately, you did fill in fill in the blanks. I mean, it's, it, I love it again. It, it comes back to how many times stories storytelling is featured on Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast and how important it is for businesses and marketing to be able to tell a good story and how often we can take techniques from the movies and use them in our marketing. It's so good to see something, to, to watch something like this that gives us all of those ideas. Now, this is a story about a marketing failure Okay. Uh, and I sort of came across this uh, this video by accident. Um, it's, it's a video on YouTube by a guy called Tom Scott. Have you come across this guy? No, I haven't. No, thank now, you. Now, this, this guy has got nearly 6 million uh, subscribers on YouTube, uh, which is phenomenal amount of people. He's actually also got a second channel called Tom Scott Plus, which has just got shy of a million. So he's, 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 he's fairly influential on, on YouTube. And he's not a vlogger. Um, it's actually, it, it, a lot of his videos come across as actual TV programs, and each one of mm. them will have been researched very, very well. And he and one day he could be looking at how a radio telescope works. Another day he could be looking at a microwave oven. Another day he was actually on a, um, he's terrified of roller coasters and they got him along to Alton Towers and made him go on Nemesis to conquer his fear of roller coasters. But the one that caught my attention has the title, Why You Can't Buy Dasani Water in Britain. And the sub heading to the video was one of the greatest marketing disasters of all time and this is an absolutely fascinating video and it's only about five six minutes long um but it's such a good story now dasani is a, a water brand marketed predominantly in the united states by coca-cola okay uh, now unlike perrier or some of the sparkling mineral waters that you and i would recognize from the supermarket shelves in the uk and, and, and probably france as well in america it's okay for companies to sell effectively purified tap water and dasani is purified tap water in the uk if you sell mineral water on the supermarket shelf it has to actually be mineral water it ha you have to be able to prove that it bubbles up somewhere from a, uh, a mountain spring or something <laughs> like that and, yeah. and it, it's, it's got to have a certain number of minerals in it etc but in america they can basically fill a bottle of water from the tap stick a label on it and sell it and that's 
that's actually accepted. Now, interestingly enough, they decided to try and launch this Dasani stuff in the United Kingdom. And the great thing about what Tom does is he he, he sort of gives a bit of background. There was also a UK sitcom, possibly one of the the most famous UK sitcoms of all time, Only Fools and Horses, about five or six years. Oh, that's right. About five five or six years before (laughs) Dasani was launched in the UK, there was an episode of Only Fools and Horses, where basically Dell, Dell Boy and Rodney clocked this idea of filling up bottles with tap water, sticking a label on it and selling it as mineral water. And the whole episode is built around this. And and, and in the end, it actually turned out that it was contaminated (coughs) water with radiation and and the the water was glowing and everything. It was very, 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 very funny episode. (laughs) But this program, obviously, was shown on Christmas Day. Millions of people watched it. And this whole idea, the psyche of Del Boy and Rodney filling up bottles of water in their kitchen and flogging them on supermarket shelves was there as a sort of resting memory in the minds of the UK population. Along comes Coca-Cola and launches Dasani into the UK. And initially... Initially, Pascal, it was actually quite successful. But then a journalist, just one journalist, did a little bit of research and found out that unlike Perrier, which is genuinely mineral water, Dasani is effectively purified tap water. Mm. And he published an article which then got picked up on the news wires. And then somebody made that connection between Dasani being tap water Dell and Rodney in that thirty uh, in that TV episode, and all of a sudden the whole thing comes crashing down, and 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 by a staggeringly probably unfortunate coincidence, the bottling factory for Dasani was actually only about five miles away from Peckham in oh no where way. The, come on where, where seriously <laughs> where Only Fools and Horses is actually set, and. Just around about this time as well, that factory was um, unfortunately delivered a, a, a poor batch of one of the um, purification chemicals, and they had to do a, a recall of hundreds and thousands of bottles of Dasani. And then and again, everybody's mind goes to Dell and Rodney, the radiation, the glowing water. And the, basically after that, Coca-Cola just said, you know what, sod it, we're not doing it, and off they went. And Asani has disappeared from supermarket shelves, and apparently it's not available. They never carried on the launch beyond the UK. It's not available in Europe. still available in the US because the US don't mind purified tap water. And I think if you do a bit of digging, there are certain places in the US where even the tap water you know smells sulfury or just smells horrible so purified tap water is an established thing so tom scott totally and utterly random but a fabulous bit of storytelling and i'm going to give him one more plaudit as well because he did this episode in what i think is one take and he was starting and it looks like he's walking down a moat basically at the side of an a road fairly busy a road and 
he times it perfectly so that when he gets to the description of the factory being five miles away from Peckham, he then just sort of turns to the side and points, <laughs> and there Brilliant. he is walking past this uh, factory. But I think, and you, you can watch the video later and let me know, I think he did it in one take, and he didn't fluff his lines once. And just after he'd finished, a great big lorry went past, and that would have ruined the shot earlier if it had happened. So kudos, great piece of um, filmmaking and a fabulous marketing story. That's absolutely brilliant. I was trying to rack my brain actually because I think it was called Peckham Spring or something. It was something Peckham to... Spring, yes, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> but um, no. So let's let's go back to video production. This is so hard to do because, um, as people will will see from the many outtakes we've produced, you know, I am a line fluffer, so there's no way I could pull this off. And and I know that you know, I can imagine the scene, but I'm looking forward to seeing that. But here's the example of what we mean about visual storytelling, mm -hmm. video marketing. In all of your views and listeners in your industry, there will be stories, good, bad, and ugly. There will be things you can look back in time and look look ahead and so on. And for you to give your your commentary, to, to kind of give your your, your take on it. Um, so, so does that mean that if somebody out there owns, I would imagine, an empty bottle of Dasani, that, that could be quite, quite a bit of money uh, yeah. on, the, on the, you know, if you want to put it online. Absolutely. And in fact, he, he does have a bottle of Dasani. Does in he? The video. Yeah. And it's actually, it, the, the, whether he's, he's filled it up with other tap water, I don't know, but it, it, it did have water in the bottle, which is quite interesting. Really fascinating. Thank you so much, Roger. Brilliant, uh, brilliant selection. That's a great bit of fun. Okay, so Pascal, let's move on to what I know is one of your favorite parts of the show, and that is marketing, tech, and apps. Well, in this part of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table apps that make our marketing lives easier and more successful. So, Pascal, what delights have you got for us this week? Yeah, kindly you mentioned this is one of my favorite segments because this is just, I'm absolutely amazed that three years later of producing two gigs of marketing podcasts, I can still get excited and found new apps and solutions. I mean, by the time we reach Episode number 100, Roger, we reviewed more than 400 options for our listeners and viewers. So it's just amazing. <laughs> this is actually, once again, inspired by a recent conversation with customers. We're finding there's a slight change in in kind of um, I could put it, mood with regard to interacting with prospects and leads. So the request for proposals, yeah. So by the time you have an exchange, whether it's face-to-face, uh, -face, Zoom, or email. Eventually, somebody asks you for a proposal. And it is clear to me that there is a departure away from the Word document type proposal. See what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Full of words, full of sections and chapters and so on. And it looks as though more and more people are more than happy, if not happier, with a visual statement. Mm -hmm. Something where there's less to read, more to look at, more to be inspired about, and so on. So I've been doing some research on how to create those visual stories, you could argue more static in, in nature. And I've been doing a lot of research on pitch decks and the structure, the um, you know the visual stimuli, the the way in which you know they use icons and and photography, big fonts and so on. You could almost argue, Roger, it's like a storyboard for a future video. So what I've done is I've come across this platform called Pitch Deck Hunt, 
And it's a bit like Product Hunt in nature, which is that this is a collection of over a thousand pitch decks across industries. So you have a menu on the, on the left-hand side where you can select your industry and different categories. What I loved about it as well is that it's focused on startups and it goes back into history, which includes, for example, the original or one of the original pitch deck of YouTube, <laughs> 2005, 2005 pitch deck for YouTube. And it looks awful, by the way, because sure 20 years later, you know, we've changed our stance. But it's fascinating to see what people thought, the information they were sharing and so on and so forth. And of course, you can find more recent one. So once you've been inspired by the selection on Pitch Deck Hunt, you need to create your own. Yes, you can go on Canva, you can use PowerPoint, you can use many of the platforms that Roger and I have shared with you, but there's one called, and I'm sure they are so pleased with the purchase of their domain name, Pitch.com. So Pitch.com is, it's almost like an online um, workspace. It's not as advanced as Canva, and maybe that's for the better. You're going to move much, much faster. But essentially, it's there to create pitch decks, project plan, uh, conference keynotes, and proposal. And it takes you through a bit of a questionnaire. It starts to populate some of you know the slides, and then you can take over and add more of your information. And it feels as though you should at least have both options. Have maybe an offer to your prospect, the short visual story, and the longer, more elaborate, you know, kind of written form in a word document or PDF. This is really interesting because I, I have seen on LinkedIn, particularly, quite a few people criticising pitch decks that companies use to do kickstarts or or just do um, venture capitalist um, fundraising uh, and that you know you almost get um, you almost get penalized if you turn up and your pitch deck isn't pitch perfect mm. intended uh, and, and almost to the point where it becomes more of a sort of death by powerpoint rather than a genuine business proposal so this is really quite interesting because it focuses you back to the point of view that you've actually got a story to tell you've got some facts to put across and it isn't about the number of slides it might even not be about any slides it's about the story and it's about mm. the structure so so that's really interesting this week, Pascal, I've been having a look at video editors. I think I've mentioned this before. My Adobe suite uh, renewal is coming up. And at the moment, um, I've got a re really good deal on my Adobe suite. I basically have access to all the Adobe products um, for a relatively decent amount. And because every year when I try, when I come to renew it they try to put the price back up and i threatened to mm. cancel unfortunately they've kept it low i've been suspecting that this year i'll just have to start paying the full whack and that will mean that i will probably drop to a lower package and probably just keep adobe premiere pro which is the video editor that i use more predominantly and i'll start using audacity as opposed to a adobe audition for audio editing but it did get me looking at alternatives to adobe premiere pro more particularly free options now i actually came across a couple of articles and a couple of videos that ranked the top five um free video editors now i could have done the top five but i thought in the spirit of of uh, marketing tech and apps we do try to limit it to two so the top two free video editors out there are as follows the first one is called caden live K-D-E-N Live, Caden Live. Now, I remember 
a few years ago, um, when I was moving on from Camtasia, which I used to use for my vlogs, I remember having a look at Caden Live and thinking it was horrible, clunky, very slow, and I just couldn't manage it at all. And, and that effectively prompted me to, to start using Adobe Premiere Pro. But now, having looked at, obviously, many iterations later, Caden Live is a really powerful program, and the fact that it's absolutely free is really quite remarkable. And it, as you would expect, it's developed, and it has quite a lot of the features and the um, functionality that Adobe Premiere Pro has. Now, obviously, it doesn't have everything. It can't do everything, but let's face it, I don't use everything on Premiere Pro. I mean, film studios use Premiere Pro for video editing these days. And the second one is one that probably everybody will have heard of. It's called DaVinci Resolve. And again, the fact that it's free and the fact it has so much functionality and it mirrors quite a lot of what Premiere Pro does is actually quite remarkable. Now, one of the criteria for the um, article that I was reading was that these have to handle 4K video. Now, I do remember in the past that Caden Live and DaVinci Resolve's free versions actually limited you to um, 1080p, and that was potentially a problem for somebody who wants to edit in 4K. But now it would appear that these free versions allow you to edit up to 4K, which, again, for a free piece of software, is absolutely remarkable. So if you're wanting a sort of Premiere Pro-esque level of video editing capability, but you don't want to pay the fee, Caden Live or DaVinci Resolve are definitely worth a look. Uh, thank you very much. Do you know, I don't think I know about Caden Live mm. for all, you know, it's back to what I was saying. We, there's always something you, you can discover, but also you, you're reminding us, go back. Um, you and I have done this before with um, other kind of software reviews, but also ask yourself the question, you know, I may be loyal to DaVinci Resolve and be loyal to Premiere Pro, but actually, is there something better, cheaper, faster? Yeah. Because you should be loyal to the story and to the audience, not to the platform. It is for them to actually work harder to, to, to make it all. And, and I'm always amazed about how poor platforms are, are communicating what they're doing, the changes, and how yeah. we can, you know, sometimes, well, particularly social media, we keep stumbling upon it as opposed to being informed about it. <laughs> exactly. So I'll have a go at that. Thank you very much. Great stuff. So, Pascal, it's time for us to go back in time. So we need to fire up the flux capacitor, set the controls of the TARDIS, and we are going back to this week in history. And in 1966, the BBC announces that Britain would be the first country in Europe to offer regular TV programming in colour. Responsible for overseeing the new colour service was the then controller of BBC2, David Attenborough. In 1970, telephone services opened to the public for calls between the US and Britain. The collaboration between AT&T and the British Post Office was made possible thanks to Intelsat 3 satellites in orbit over the Atlantic. And in 1974, Atari introduces Grand Track 10. It is the first arcade driving video game to use solid state read only memory, ROM, to store sprites of its cars, the game timer, the race strike, and the score. And in 1985, the Internet's domain name system, DNS, was created, and the first domain to be registered was Symbolics.com. So, Pascal, tell me a bit more about the telephone service 
and the collaboration between AT&T and the, G, the GPO. It, it just shows what is possible. Um, can I just say, you know, people, 1970, it was a long time ago. And I, I'm just amazed at what was possible then. Because, you know, we, we always have this, this um, feeling that, the last 10 years is when it all happened and you know we have access to mobile phones and 5g and so on so you have this incredible collaboration between i suppose government and private sector to launch five satellites in in into space to orbit there so we're going to say but why five well because here's the thing roger if you want to have a service that is always on you can't just for the satellite to do his round around the Earth to be in the right position at all time. So they launched five satellites. They all had different kind of um, you know cycles around the Earth, so that at all times you had at least two that were over the the Atlantic that could handle um, the, the the phone calls. And what we're talking about here is someone in in America ringing. Sending essentially, you know, microwave uh, into space to then them to be bounced down to to the UK for someone to pick up the phone with very little delay, and and it has continued uh, ever since. Now we do have obviously subsea uh, cables, which we discuss oddly on this um, this week in history in in, in print. But I, I just want to pause for a moment and and just you know agree that it is pretty amazing that in 1970. Okay, you know, 20, 25 years after the Second World War, where the world was still busy rebuilding itself, that people were able to collaborate and make this happen. And I think that was a precursor of the, all the form of communication that, that that we have today and the planning and the, the, the engineering and so on. And I want to take it back to then the 1966 news about the BBC being the first uh, colour program programmer in, in Europe and the way in which Britain was first on so many different things and and i have an anchoring for that that time again that period of time again because i think somehow it's gone it's, it's gone elsewhere would you agree oh, um so i just want to spend a moment to just applaud in the the engineers and people that worked on that just incredible it's it's it is sobering isn't it it is sobering and again you know I, i'm going to talk about atari launching grand track 10 and as you said it's the first arcade driving video game to use sprites and to 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 um, create that in, in immersive environment and the thing that's amazing me is that it was 1974 now i i always feel that i was there when video games really took off i was on saint anne's pier pretty much every day after mm. school with a pocket full of 10p pieces and playing games like Space Invaders, Pac-Man and eventually Defender, which was my absolute ultimate um, favourite video game. And in my head, that was the early 80s. That was 81, 82. But here we are saying that Atari did this Grand Track 10. And I'm sure there was a Grand Track 10 unit on St. Anne's Pier. And that was 1974. That's amazing. That was a lot earlier than I thought. The, and, and if, you know, yeah, no, I, I would agree. Can I just say, I was rubbish at this game. It was, <laughs> it was hard. It was very hard to play because not only uh, did you have to control the car, but you had to know a bit about car driving because you had the uh, the brake and the speed up. You had also the, it wasn't gear as such, but it was, you know, can you go faster and, and lower? And it was a very difficult track to, to maneuver around. And 
I was always in all of um, boys and girls older than me. I couldn't get the car to skid around the corner because also there was an issue around time and high scores and so on. But Atari did that. And then they did the home entertainment unit as well. I remember friends of ours had it and could play a version of Pong or tennis, you know, on the, on the TV screen. So always ahead of the game. And, and again, I'm very nostalgic today for some reason. I just wish that there was still a strong player in today's video game industry. Yeah, I mean, I think they do still exist, don't they? Because um, I have played games recently where I know that Atari have at least been the publisher, but they don't mm. seem to definitely don't seem to be at the cutting edge as they were all those years ago. Wow. As always, This Week in History gives you that moment where you do need to sit and think, as you said, the debt that we owe to these pioneers from the past that give us the life that we have today. I mean, imagine the, the thought of not being able to make a phone call now. I mean, my sister in Los Angeles, I can pick up my mobile phone and phone her, and there she is. Whereas in 1970, before that satellite came along, you couldn't do that. I mean, mm. it's just it just beggars belief, doesn't it? So, Pascal, let's bring things right back up to date now. It's time to do some creator shout-outs. Okay, Pascal, who are you giving a shout-out for this week? Okay, so this week, this is about the work of Stephen McCormick, an IT business analyst, a digital content creator, and the MSP community manager for toblog.co.uk, the hub for uh, MSP. And he's the author of an amazing article. I want to kind of spend some time because it's also an example to follow, but also one that's all about what content marketing is about. The article is how to address quiet quitting to engage staff in your IT business. But I think this article will be uh, relevant to any time or any type of business sorry and any sector the, the reason why I, I chose it is because the timing is impeccable this is exactly what content marketing is about you study you analyze you know wants and needs you look at obviously behavior on search engine and social you adopt a theme this one was around quite quitting and the great resignation, which we mentioned, if you recall, uh, in the news last year. And then you literally share your findings. And this is about not necessarily being the expert. This is about taking the trouble to save time for your audience by doing your research. And, and then you structure your article um, accordingly. So you have, of course, the section of what is quite quitting. Um, then you move on to, is quite quitting still a problem today? The dangers of disengaged employees, steps you can take to mitigate the problem, what happens when you can't reach a compromise, the legacy of quite quitting, conclusion, and the sources mentioned in this article. And this is not just an article full of words. You have graphics, you've got also sources, you've got data, you've got you know so many things going. So not only I think it's a great resource for anyone in business as a team leader and so on. But for me, the reason I chose it, Roger, is this is what we mean by content marketing or the, the pre kind of creation phase, the creation phase, and you go back and you add value to your to your article. And I think for me, it, I just found that it was important to bring it to the fore at a time where sadly, we're going to see more and more mundane, monotone kind of content, in particular, if you are using, using some of those infamous AI platforms. <laughs> Absolutely right. Let's not <laughs> talk about the infamous chat GPT. Oh my goodness. So so, Pascal, my shout-out this week was almost my content spotlight. 
Uh, I'm a shouting out another YouTube channel, doing a bit of a theme on YouTube channels at the moment. This YouTube channel is called Nerd Writer. And this guy tends to look at scripts for films and scripts for TV shows amongst other things. And the reason it wasn't a content spotlight is because we've already talked about the subject of the film Passengers. We've done that in film marketing. One of my favourite science fiction films, Passengers, starring um, Chris Pratt, and um, mm. uh, her name's gone completely out of my head, um, but you know who I mean. And this guy actually dis just creates this video to say, what would happen if we actually just rearrange the plot of Passengers slightly? Oh, and okay. he does an absolutely remarkable job. Now, very, very quickly, the the, the, the plot of um, Passengers is Chris Pratt's um, uh, character wakes up on a spaceship um, far too early. He should have um, slept for another 90 years. He wakes up and he spends a year trying to put himself back to sleep, trying to, to uh, create a life on his own on this spaceship while hundreds and hundreds of other people are sleeping and in the end he wakes up another of the passengers and for a moment they they they're all happy and they eventually fall in love but then she finds out that he actually woke her up and that also causes all sorts of trouble and in the end the spaceship is endangered and they collaborate together to fix the spaceship and they all live ha happily ever after what he does here and i'd love to see a cut of this film work like this he actually starts the film and this this actually ties beautifully back to your content spotlight earlier where you were talking about how films start he suggests that film should actually start when she gets woken up and she's actually the point of view character so she gets woken up then she finds him and hears his story about how he has been awake for a year. She assumes that it's a similar mistake that woke her up. And then they go through the usually fall in love, etc. Then she finds out, and she's absolutely livid, as, as in the main film. They then have to collaborate on fixing the problem, stopping the ship from exploding. But actually in that, in his um, version, Chris Pratt then dies, and she's left on her own on the ship. And the ending of the film is her looking down at another person in a sleep pod. Nice. And it's the will will she or won't she wake somebody up just like he woke her up. And I thought, do you know what? That would work, wouldn't it? So nerd writer, fantastic. I want to see <laughs> the passengers rearranged director's cut in cinemas near me sometime soon. Uh, that's brilliant. And you know what? That is also an incredible segue to film marketing because this is what fans did about Waterworld. Yeah. So let's move on to probably our favourite part of the show. Let's be honest, Pascal. <laughs> let's move on to film marketing. Well, Pascal, this week we are going to talk about Waterworld. This is your film choice. And before we dive into an analysis of the film itself and the marketing campaigns that surround it, let's have a look at the trailer. The sun. For millions of years, the source of life. But for one planet, the source of its demise. The temperatures climbed. The vast fields of ice at its poles melted, and the oceans rose. 
Centuries later, few people remain on this planet once called Earth. still searches, a woman who still hopes, and a small child who carries the secret to a new beginning. In this place they know only as Water World. They don't make trailers like this anymore. I think we should go back to the days of the voice. I mean, that guy has been part of our life, you know, it would seem for a very long time. You know, you knew that you, you would be well looked after by the voice or all those trailers. Waterworld, <laughs> 1995, barely two years after you could say the, the birth of the internet in a public domain um, kind of way. And the most misunderstood film, in my view, uh, somehow, part with this reputation being a flop, where in fact it's been financially a success globally over time, I grant you, one that uh, to this day is reviewed by the fans galore, has had the DVD, the Blu-rays, the 4K releases, you know, and talking about even a TV series. Uh, it's just um, an interesting one for us to explore. But yeah, I went to the movies in 95, like many people, and, and and watched it, and I absolutely loved the universe, the world setting. The, the I loved obviously the mariner played by Kevin Costner, and this catamaran, you know, this kind of uh, his little, literally, it was like a, a little bubble mm-hmm. on this ocean. I mean, if you are one of the the ten people who have not seen Waterworld, <laughs> in a, the, this takes place in the future. The ice cap has melted completely. And the world is entirely made of water. And a small band of of survivors are looking for land. And a young girl, Enola, has a map tattooed on her back that could take people to the promised land. And so it goes on. Yeah, water world. What did you make of it? Well, Pascal, I don't think that I've seen this film since we went to the cinema to see it after its original release. So my memories of it are very, very vague. I remember at the time thinking maybe that it was Mad Max in on boats instead yeah. of Mad Max in cars. I had that image in my head that Kevin Costa was playing a very, very similar character to Mad Max, perhaps not as... Um, as uh, as mad but you know the, the the vibe was there Dennis Hopper was that sort of just I mean he's always a manic villain isn't he Dennis <laughs> Hopper what am I saying but yeah. you know what I like um, so I, I do remember being amazed by how on earth must they have done this you know they've spent all that time in the water but I don't genuinely have 
either positive or negative thoughts about it. It's just a film I saw, probably enjoyed at the time, but it's not one that I've sought out on Blu-ray or DVD. I don't own a copy of it on Blu-ray or VHS or whatever. Um, it's just one of those films. And I don't know whether I've become a victim of the, the negativity that surrounds this film and that I need to, and I probably will, re review it now having had this conversation. But yeah, it, it's, it was a good film, but it's just not one that's um, stuck in my mind. And, you know, like a film like Lord of the Rings would or Die Hard that I constantly go back to, this is one that I just haven't gone back to. And I don't know no, why. No, it, it, that's why I want, I want to really explore because, of course, with the benefit of hindsight, which is, you know, um, almost very, very unfair. So going back to going back in time, literally, this movie was released in the summer. Mm -hmm. uh, in the US and the UK in 1995. Then there was a very sluggish rollout across the rest of the world to the point where it was in the autumn when it was released in France. And that's tricky because this was really a, a desire by, I'm going to say Universal, I could be completely wrong, it is Universal. <laughs> Universal, it was back to this idea of the summer blockbuster. This is meant to be the summer blockbuster. But you have an issue because actually, once you do the research, and as I discovered, because I have a copy of the full version, which is around three hours long we went to the movies to see a version that was two hours and 15 45 minutes is a hell of a lot of um kind of slicing and dicing hacking away which means that what they had to strip out was the the, the storyline and the bonding between the mariner uh kevin costner and the young girl because of the beginning and and you know more around the world and the survival and actually they spend a bit longer on the island so maybe already we we have a compromised product you know to use the term when you go to the movies but this movie inherited this unfair reputation um and i do say unfair because if you look at the financials it was fine i mean you know they, they made their money and more and it was so good that people did a novel there was video again there was even an official pinball machine there's uh, in all the major uh, uh, universal parks, you know, Hollywood, Singapore, in Japan, and Beijing, they have a water world uh, zone where there's uh, stunts and the storylines being retold and so on. So they're not particularly in embarrassed about it. Um, they're even talking about doing a TV series with the director of Prey. So for me, this movie began but being condemned by the tr critics whilst in production because of what people took exception to the runaway cost and budget. So they were saying, hang on a minute, this is costing far too much money. Um, and my reaction is, well, whose money is it? You know, wh wh why would you have such a strong view? And as you read and learn, uh, you know, particularly from interviews from Kevin Costner and the others, they were besieged by problems, you know, bad weather, damaged sets. They had to rebuild them again. There was obviously people falling ill um, and so on and so forth. And his view was, he always said to Universal Pictures, this is a $120 million movie, $140. They said, well, we'll give you half. So as a true entrepreneur, he took half and then got what he wanted in the end. And then, of course, they had to add more to, for delays, repairs, and so on. Because of that, they also spent money on marketing, which you and I would approve. But that caused critics to be even more offended for some reason about how dare you spend your own money on, on marketing. But, you know, when you have ambition like they had to create this world and natural elements working against you, you've got to spend the money. But that was just um, the most bizarre. And um, experts suggest that was the beginning of some of the poorer use of the internet because, of course, critics who had little to say and do by the um, 
the movie because of the secrecy, they went on to criticize, you know, the production cost. Why did they launch such a truncated version, Pascal? Did you discover the reason for that? Was that a, a decision by the, the studio that it was just too long and we want you to edit yeah. it down? They, there was two things. They lost their nerves. Yes. They believed that they could get more bombs on seats, not wishing to be crude by the expression, but yeah. in one day, how many sittings can you get? Yeah. It's a bit like, you know, uh, using the aircraft analogy, how many seats can you have on the Boeing 747? And they, they really lost their nerves because of um, the mounting kind of negative feelings about it. And I'm going to add a layer of that. I think in general, the industry just had um, something with Kevin Costner. They just didn't seem to really warm to the guy. But this is the man that gave us Dances with Wolves, JFK, uh, Robin Hood. And I don't know, there was something going on and they had to react accordingly. Yeah. I mean, do you think it was anything to do with the competition from other films? I mean, there was certainly a lot of fairly um, sizable um, hits coming out in 1995, Toy Story, Stargate, Braveheart, Bridges Over Madison County, The Usual Suspects, Seven, oh, wow. Heat, 12 Monkeys, Goldeneye. It was a bumper year for, I mean, look how many of those we've actually reviewed on the show. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe they just decided we need to, we need to try and make this more pacey. We need to uh, mm. cut it down to, to, to fit it in, as you say. I mean, sorry, I'm, I'm I'm suddenly being thrown back in time to '95. That was a good year to be yeah. a movie fan. My yeah. goodness, I'd forgotten about all that. Yeah. So, so I think for me, you know, maybe as well with hindsight. So the desire to literally blow people's minds and and surprise them, and you know, they didn't want to reveal about the, the world of Waterworld. You know, they wanted to 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 shock you. They didn't even want to reveal, for example, the opening, talking about the opening scene. So the opening scene is really quite famous nowadays because it's about the universal logo around the, the globe. And then slowly but surely as the camera is swooping in, the um, ice cap is melting, which you can see. And little by little, the whole world becomes blue. And then you crossfade to um, you know the real um, world. This was 1995, Roger. This was like a, a, quite a coup in terms of technology. But they thought, no, 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 let's not show that to people. We want that to be revealed at the movie. So I think the secrecy also fueled this strange, strange attack uh, on the film by critics. Because once people went to see the movie, they they loved it, of course. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it, it is it is bizarre. So, so what did they do with the marketing then? Given the fact that they seem to be stacking the deck against themselves, well, quite a bit. So. They began by releasing, obviously, quite striking um, posters. The one that we know universally is that picture of Kevin Costner stu stu standing out there, dressed, I would agree, that kind of Manmath-esque Man uh, outfit with a kind of harpoon gun, the term Walter World, and at his feet, you've had essentially the only kind of um, bit of oasis in, in this world, and, and, and Kevin Costner. And then the other one that, that, that was done, but I think it was more for the US market, was more of a two-column uh, design on one hand, you've got the water with um, what we learned to be then the symbol of how to get to the promised land, mm. and then a close-up of Kevin Costner's face, and and you do that. And I think with hindsight, they could have done more with all the other characters. Mm. Uh, again, time constraints, briefs, you know, we don't know what, what it is. 
and then very quickly they released a teaser trailer. Well, that was quite enigmatic on purpose. They were showing the world, the characters, this one. There was not the narration that we heard a moment ago from The Voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and really people could see that this is actually a action-packed, entertaining movie for the family. I think that was also there for, for the family market. And then you had, obviously, later on the the um, official trailer that we watched and heard. So what did they do to kind of counter this kind of strange, strange um, attack. Then they invested, which is where the budget went in, in quite a significant number of TV spots mm. and radio spots. So thanks to the wonderful people on YouTube who are kind of the kind of librarians and archivists of the internet, I managed <laughs> to discover about 15 different um, TV spots, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, extended TV spots of two minutes. And what was interesting, I'm going to take you back to the um, content spotlights. All the TV spots had a different opening scene. Yeah. So going back to the characters, sometime we heard the voice of Deacon, you know, played by Dennis Hopper. Sometimes it was Jim Triplehorn. Sometimes it was different characters. So whilst in general, they all said the same thing, the way they started was always different. I thought it was actually, you know, what you would expect, but we're going back to 95, of course, and that's really quite, um, quite, quite fun to see. So you've got all of that going on, but I think they had to go beyond, and they realized that maybe the desire to surprise the audience but not revealing too much had worked against them. So then you move into magazines, you move into TV, radio, chat shows, and so on. And interestingly, Kevin Costner in particular spent quite a bit of time explaining how hard it had been to make Waterworld and what they were up against and so on. And almost, you know, had that rekindled the respect of saying this is about ambition, this is about vision, and we now kind of get it more. And that encouraged people to go and see it. But, you know, all magazines from mainstream kind of um, lifestyle magazine all the way to movie publication. They had Kevin Costner um, on, on the front cover. For my part, I think at the time I was reading Total Film as, as a magazine. Did you ever kind of follow ma- film magazines at all yourself? Oh, oh yes. I um, I started buying Empire magazine right. pretty much as soon as it was originally published. And I do, re- I do remember buying Total as well. Um, funnily enough, I don't really follow either of those their um web versions um i i i i I don't know why i don't know why i've never um followed them online maybe it was things like internet movie databases just sort of uh, (laughs) uh taken taken that gap i mean to me this it's it's interesting because we've reviewed quite a few films with ensemble casts haven't we um where their marketing is focused on each of the individual characters and the two that come to mind straight away death on the nile and also mm. the, the the work that we looked at for the tv series of the rings of power you know each of the characters had their own posters each of the characters had their own almost like um mini tv spots uh trailers whatever it was or focusing in on the costume focusing in on their character traits and this that and the other and to me this would have been so apt for this film they could have done a focus on kevin costner and on enola and on gene Triplehorn's character and of course dennis hopper's character with his you know with all of his um, costumes and his mannerisms and that and i think they did miss a trick there to focus in on the characters and maybe that would have made the film more about everybody rather than just another vehicle for kevin costner 
Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's that's very very fair. You know, again, hindsight is is, is, yeah. is wonderful things, and uh, and for me, I, I really understand why they didn't want to reveal. It's a bit like the Mandalorian, you know, keeping Grogu hidden from the from us and and Luke Skywalker return. I totally understand that, and that didn't work for them. Uh, mm-hmm. That just get, get, uh, it created um, a void. Of information and news that was filled in by essentially rubbish and just actually ill f- feelings, which I don't think were justified. I mean, to the point where so they spend an absolute fortune, therefore, on the TV, radio spots, and, and magazines. They went went ahead and began the process of introducing Waterworld attraction uh, <laughs> as an area within the Universal Studios theme park. But why wouldn't you? you know, it's your it's your domain. Yeah. They even had uh, research would suggest a partnership with Coca-Cola, where they had a limited edition uh, Waterworld um, soda cans. So back to you know your <laughs> reference to the water earlier, and each can featured images from the movie. So if somebody has now from 1995 one of those, it must be worth an absolute fortune. <laughs> um, and so they went on with um, showcasing the music, um, doing the making of documentaries. But I would say after the release, and and maybe. Um, that wasn't quite enough, but they carried on, and the movie got that. And I think for me, the it peaked in '98 when the um, TV network ABC finally, finally aired the nearly three-hour version. They removed bits and bobs that um, was about swearing and and too much violence, but people could see the three-hour version, and that renewed interest in the movie. For my part, in 95, 96, I was working in a video rental store. I was just finishing mm. my studies to then become a young marketing officer. And that movie, Waterworld, uh, the cassette, just cassette for our younger viewers and listeners, was out all of the, all time. the time. People loved watching it in the home environment. And in fact, its success really was in, in a home in, in entertainment front. That's really interesting how this this has played out, isn't it? I mean, mm. I, I think about some of those other films we mentioned that came out the same year. You know, Heat, Goldeneye. Yeah. You know, you could you could argue that yes, this film was a victim of the early internet and maybe the internet and the way the internet interacts with people and, and the critics and the fact that we could now communicate more widely. You'd think that that almost like scapegoating might have been evident with other films but i don't remember there being that sort of negativity surrounding any of those other films in fact they all probably benefited from the early days of the internet whereas this one just seems to have been a victim of it the other question i was going to ask you now is that as i say i I don't have the dvd i don't i never bought the vhs what was released on blu-ray was it is it is it now always been the three hour version? Or so, that so if you go for the um, yeah, if you go for the distributor Arrow Video, which I think are based in Europe primarily, you have yeah. two versions. You have the theatrical version, yeah. and you have what they call the Ulysses cut, which is just <laughs> short of you know three hours. And the three hour version is a different experience altogether. We couldn't well imagine 45 minutes extra in character development, mm-hmm. in scene setting. You spend longer at the end on the island as well. It, it makes a lot of more sense. You understand more by Nola as well, Horigen, but also the build-up of the relationship, which at the, at, at the start is completely fractious between the mar- mariner. And which I think is also so clever. You know, there's no, this is a man with no name, the mariner. Yes. And then in the relationship with um, Helen, played by Jim Triplehorn, and Enola and how eventually he's changed. This is his, his kind of hero's journey um, f- for himself as well. It's just um, 
described a lot better. There's also, because of the three hours, you know, a longer spent in um, looking at the water and the beauty of sunsets and so on. There's also things going on. So if anyone can get their hands on a copy, it's available, you can buy it online now, um, you, you, it will be a different viewing experience for sure. So I think I do need to revisit this film, um, and you've you've inspired me to revisit this film, <laughs> Pascal, but I am going to look for the Ulysses cut, I think, and I do think it needs to be uh, it needs to be enjoyed in 4K if that Ulysses cut is available in 4K. So I'm actually really quite looking forward to seeing this film again and to you know to to reflect upon the fact that maybe the critics were unduly harsh on this and and just the the fledgling early days of the internet actually created a scapegoat mm. out of this film for for reasons that we probably will never know no absolutely so thank you very much you know it's been enjoyable to research it i, I learned so much i didn't know about but that that link to marketing to this idea of a well-intentioned desire to surprise and you know all inspire audiences that somehow backfired because you leave like I said this void and people want the news they want to, to have something and sadly they latch on to the negativity and and going back to the budget it seems to have somehow offended people like when you spend your own money two years later of course we had Titanic yes that was even more expensive and nobody had anything well maybe they did and maybe i've missed it but you know what i mean and so for me Waterworld was also setting the trend into ambition some of blockbusters and let's spend the money though that, that is ours why wouldn't we yeah and of course titanic was nearly three hours long as well if i remember <laughs> That's right true, yeah. there you go so pascal great choice of film thanks for that thanks for all the research you've done and thank you everybody who watched or listened to episode 95 of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We've really enjoyed this episode. Some great content spotlights, some great shout-outs, some great news items. Just, I'm just getting a really good vibe about everything we've discussed today. So thanks ev again, everybody. Please do subscribe to the YouTube channel. Please do let us have your comments. You can talk to us on the YouTube channel. You can talk to us on Twitter. You can leave us a message on on uh, SpeakPipe, and just let us know what films you'd like us to review. Let us know what content is inspiring your marketing. So until the next episode, please go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards, and he was Pascal Fintoni. Mm -hmm.